morning. Well, if you just sang that and you were in the moment of that, and that's true of you, praise be to God that that is true. That these keys that you have, that He gave you, that He opened up, He is the key, He is the door. He did that for you, and you're going to walk with your King. It's beyond me. Amazing. And by the way, and this is in my notes, but I've added to it. And you're like, oh no, he added to his notes. But I had to because of the connection between Sunday school and what we just read in our Psalms. Sunday school has been an incredible blessing. And I just told Dave, I said, hey, this should be required listening for all believers. Because we so easily, as a believer, begin to forget the greatness of our God. Even in salvation, even as we sing a song like that, you may be singing it thinking, I've acquired this, I've done this, I did this, but you didn't. When we begin to think about all of the elements, all of the attributes of our God as we've been going through and just been such a blessing, your takeaway has to be awe, wonder, fear, and reverence for our almighty God. So as we looked at that psalm this morning and the difficulty and the pain and what the, what the author was going through, as Justin pointed out, man, his, his conclusion was, what a mighty God that I have. I'm going to remember his greatness. I'm going to remember his deeds. What a takeaway that that is. What a beautiful thing. And that's an important thing to consider. This is in my notes. As we go into this particular section of this long um, kind of I guess, dictation of what Christ has done. And we don't want it to be that. We don't want it to just be some, some kind of academic study of, of an event that was miraculous and amazing. What we have to do, what we have to be careful to do as we look at this and we continue to look at this is to not clinically or um, unpersonally step away from it and say, these Pharisees, these people, how could they you can't do that. When we approach the Word of God, it is, how could I? Because it's so easily could we fit ourselves into this, how easily we can, we can find ourselves thinking, that's somebody else, and that's not for me. And so I want us to be careful about that as we go forward, thinking that way and thinking about that consideration. And I'll open that up just a little bit as we go forward. But as we consider where we're going today, and this is a three-part series, as you know, so... You will be burdened with me next week as well as we finish this up. Today we're going to cover 13 through 23, which is essentially an investigation of the Messiah. Seems kind of funny, doesn't it? To investigate the Messiah, the King of Kings, that he's on trial, and yet that's exactly what people do every single day. Put Jesus on trial, put his word on trial, and they consider it and try to work it out. So just as you know what we've done last week, we covered these first three points. Today we're going to cover just a single point number four, and then next week, five and six. So that's kind of where we're going and, and what we'll be up to today or what we'll be facing today. Just as an outline of what we're going to hit today in this Pharisees investigation, we're going to start with why they told them to begin with, <laughs> why the Pharisees got involved to begin with. We're going to see them open up yet again this Sabbath issue that Pastor dealt with back in chapter five that we've seen before but what we're going to see revealed, once again, is the character of willful, obstinate, stubborn unbelief. Once again, don't take yourself away from that. Be careful that you don't do that. 
And then this idea of what was questioned of this man, this man who was healed, what would he say about him? And then we're going to meet the parents. And that's going to be interesting too. And a lesson about fear of man that we find here. So just from last week, and I'm always got to discipline myself not to reteach last week, but what we saw last week very clearly is that Christ taught his disciples and had to teach them something about a bad theology, a bad understanding. Uh, Jeff Blackburn yesterday in our, we had a Bible study together with several men here, and we were talking this through, and he made an excellent point. He said, really the first miracle that takes place here in this story isn't, isn't the man physically being, being healed of his blindness. It's the apostles gaining a better understanding, gaining the only understanding that they could have from the Messiah. Christ opened up their eyes. Now here's the rub on that. He, does that, he did that with you too, Christian. If you believe in Jesus, it isn't because of your intellectual assent that that happened. It's because he revealed it to you from above, just as he told Peter. But just as we see with these men, they gained a greater understanding because they listened to the word, the living word that was in front of them. You have the living word that's in front of you too in written form. It's been given to you to know it more, just as we've talked about in first hour. To know God more is going to make you more like him. He's going to transform you through his word. These men, this miracle took place that they would not have understood this. They couldn't have possibly understood this. Keep in mind what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Why isn't it to you? Well, because it's the power of God for salvation for you, right? Because you, you've had this given to you by God. He's revealed this to you. He's, he's opened up the veil. He's lifted the veil. He's taking those scales off. That's what happened to you. Very good point that he made. But he taught them also to make the best use of their time. He healed this blind man and then the doubt of these people. And this transitions us into what we're going to talk about this week, which is this investigation. So turn to John chapter 9. And uh, that's my introduction. It wasn't terrible with that addition, but John chapter 9. Timing-wise, John chapter 9, let's go to this. I'd like to read this full through. It's only 10 verses, and then we'll break this down. But John chapter 9, starting at verse 13. So coming off of last week, and we see this, and the people, the neighbors, considering this, and um, they said, we don't know where he is. Verse 12, verse 13. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. And as we've been singing, 
As we consider your greatness, it makes me tremble to consider the fact that we here as your servants have your word in front of us today, and you intend to use it to change us, to convict us, to mold us, to bring it to bear in our lives, and to take it into our daily activity tomorrow. It makes me tremble to consider that you've given us this responsibility myself to teach it and learn it as I've, as I've learned it this week and as I continue to learn it as I teach it, but then as we hear it, to take it and, and make it real to us, and you're going to do that. So we praise your name for that. We praise you for those here who may not yet know you, that they're going to hear the gospel today, and that you're going to convict them, and you're going to draw them to your son, and they're going to be faced with the question of who you are and who he is, and the fact that they need repentance, that they need faith in him and in him alone for salvation. We praise you that you've given us those opportunities as well. Be with us as we handle this text, and I pray that we can see what you would like us to see today. Not what I'd like to see, but what you'd like us to see today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we look at this passage, let's start with verse 16. Verse 16, or verse 13, excuse me. Verse 13, the Pharisees getting involved, this 13 through 17. Here's what it says right off the bat in verse 13. As we look at this, this is the Feast of Booths, as we go all the way back, kind of, we kind of think about this, and, it, and the they here, it says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So if we go all the way back, and we will here in just a moment to John 7, we know who the people are that are there. They are people who are, who are here for the feast, who are coming from all over the area of Israel and coming to Jerusalem. But it specifically says here that the they are the neighbors. So there's a broader understanding of who the they are. But verse 8, if we go back, and you're, you're right there, you can see it says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? So we know these are people who know him, that are around him, that are probably worshiping with he and his family. And, and we can understand that they would all have a kind of a history with one another that he is known by them. And you think, boy, they'd really want to look out for this guy, don't you suppose? That they'd really want to look out for who he is. But I want you to understand there's a greater understanding of these neighbors and those who are around. Look at verse, chapter 7, verse 10 through 13. You certainly can turn back there in your Bibles. It's there in front of you. But I'll bring it up on the text or on the, uh, the screen. It says, but after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. We also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews... Verse 11, we're looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So we have a contrast of different types of people here. The, the verse 11 gives us the Jews. And when we look at the context of this, we know that this is the Jews that are in authority, not just generally Jewish people. When we oftentimes hear that phrase or that, that statement, the Jews, and when it's in condemnation of Christ or people are afraid of them, these are the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, Sadducees at times, scribes, teachers of the law. We see that. But then we see also the people here. Now that's just the general people. Who are these people? Well, they're Jews, certainly. They're there to worship. Some of them are maybe local. Some of them have been scattered. Some of them are coming from a distance, and they have a debate in their mind about who he is. But here's what most of them share in common, the last bit, verse 13. Here's what they share in common, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. 
That's going to overwrite. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right here. We're going to get to that at the end because it comes back again. And I've chosen to, I actually had it here first, and I said, you know, let's get to that at the end. This comes back over and over and over and over again in John's gospel, the fear of the Jews. So you might think, well, what's motivating these neighbors who would, you'd think that they would love them and care about him, what's motivating them to why they go to the Pharisees? Because they're afraid. And they they don't want to be associated. We, We understand that there's ramifications to that. Great ramifications. Okay, so just keep that in your head. We're going to get to this later, but there's a reason why the people are handing them over, sending them to the Jewish authorities, as we see right away here. And right away, we see this. If you go back to the text in John 9, it says Sabbath day. That's the first thing that's mentioned. It's Sabbath day. So, what's this Sabbath day issue in verse 16 that we see? And right away in verse 13 and 14, or 14 and 16. I'll read that text again. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. So right off the bat, we see this focus on the Sabbath, that they're hyper-focused on the Sabbath, that there's an issue in their mind with the Sabbath. Well, what is that? John MacArthur does a great job of explaining this to us, and I'm going to bring this up on the screen. It's long and it's small, so I will read it to you. It says, The Pharisees had invented many ridiculous laws concerning the Sabbath. You couldn't fill a lamp with oil on the Sabbath. You couldn't light a wick on the Sabbath. If a man extinguished a lamp on the Sabbath to spare the lamp to save the oil and conserve the wick, he was guilty of violating the Sabbath. Further down in the commentary, he says, they had laws that said a man was not, going, that was, not, was not to go out on the Sabbath with sandals shod with nails because nails constituted a burden. <laughs> and he's carrying a weight on the Sabbath. And that's a violation. A man was not allowed to cut his fingernails or pull a hair out of his head or his beard. My beard just, hair just falls out all the time. I'd be violating it constantly. It was just absolutely ridiculous, adding burden after burden after burden on the Sabbath. And part of these rules was not only the forbidding to heal, but in fact, if you had a toothache, you couldn't pull your tooth on the Sabbath. You could use suck on vinegar to mitigate the pain. Just make it up rules. I guess that's because probably somebody who wrote the rules had a toothache on that day and said, but I, I'm just guessing. There's even a rabbinical statute recorded in by Mamadines that the historic Jews, this historic Jew, specifically prohibited the spreading of saliva, which is interesting on this one, right? On anyone on the Sabbath because they believed saliva had some kind of medicinal value. Jesus had definitely done that, right, in this situation. So he had broken their Sabbath. Their focus was these man-made rules. Well, Jesus says something about this, doesn't he? He says a lot about this. And if we think about some of the things that Jesus had to say about this Sabbath issue, let's just do a quick review of some of these things. And we've seen some of these before, even from this pulpit in this series, but let's review. In Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus say this. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. They had totally reversed what this was about, totally misunderstood. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, that he dictates what's going on. He is the one who's in control. And keep in mind, they had invented rules to put a burden on man, to put a burden on man and then gain glory for themselves. So Jesus, right off the bat, reverses it. He has more to say about that. Further on in Matthew, Matthew 5, he says this, you hypocrites, speaking to these same type of people, these Jewish leaders, well, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now he gets this right to the heart of the matter. In vain do they worship me. By the way, vain here is they are thinking they're doing it. They're trying to do it. Their efforts are in it, but it, it has no weight. There is nothing to it. Why? Because they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. They decided what would be right. They didn't look to the word of God. Once again, I have got to allude to our one. If you don't know who your God is, if you don't know what the word of God says about your God, you will invent things for yourself that satisfy you and your pleasures. And I will do the same. We will begin, if you're not diligently disciplined in the Word of God, you will invent your own Jesus. You will invent your own God, and people have been doing it since the beginning of time. They've been doing it since Babel, and they will continue to do it until the Lord reigns on earth. And honestly, there will be unregenerate in the kingdom, too, that will do it again. This is the state of man, and it's the state of you and I. Blessed be the Lord if you are saved and redeemed, and yet we can still slip into some of these. Now, we've seen this before, this idea of the Sabbath. As I mentioned, Pastor covered it. But just as a reminder, John chapter 5, keep in mind, this is the man healed by the pool at Bethesda. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was the, why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They didn't care about the healing. They didn't care about the miracle. They didn't care about anything other than their man-made rules were violated. Their rules, their pride, their ego, them. We live in a, well, we always have, but I can tell you, I'm in a little bit of a hyper-focus dealing with teenagers on a daily basis, that we live in a look-at-me type of culture. We look in a uh, me-first type of culture. Now, we always have. Ego, pride has always been an issue. This is not a new phenomenon. It was for us when we grew up. It has always been the case. But in the age of social media and likes and look at me, focusing on you, putting out your best ver- version of yourself digitally, this is a real struggle. This is a real struggle. This is really practical, and it is for you and I as well. But this issue is not just the Sabbath. Okay? It, it goes beyond that. Because, again, I'm going to remind you and remind us. Let me just remind us. We could say, I got the Sabbath thing. I don't think that's an issue for me. It goes beyond that. I want you to notice it wasn't just the Sabbath. Okay, Because of the Sabbaths, he was doing these things. But look at John 5, 17 and 18. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, there's that, but he was even calling God his own father and making self equal, himself equal with God. See, deity of Christ, as we have been reinforcing week after week after week in this entire series, I don't think, as I've reviewed these sermons between Pastor and I, there hasn't been a single sermon where we haven't reminded ourselves of who Christ really is. Not, not one time. Now, you can check me, but I'm pretty sure we have not one time stood up here and not reminded you of the deity of Christ. The God-man. And why is that important? Why is that important? Because his authority makes a difference. First of all, he can't save you if he's not God. No doubt about it. But if he's not God, you're not going to do what he says. You're not. You're not going to yield to him. If If he's not God, your sin doesn't matter as much. 
The cross doesn't matter as much. The sacrifice doesn't mean as much. You see? It really makes a difference. So it's not just the Sabbath issue. It's who do you say he is, as we'll break down as we go forward. This is a real critical thing. And as we consider this, and we consider about this, this idea of the concept of who Christ is and that the issues with them, it goes well beyond just the Sabbath. That's an issue, no doubt about it. They had a problem with that, but it's much greater than that. It's much bigger than that. And, and as we think about this and the, the idea of, of who Christ is, as we go forward in this, this is something that's even bigger. Okay? The idea and the heart of the people here I'd say the neighbors and the Pharisees. I'd say the modern-day person today, and hopefully not you, is this issue. The character and what it looks like of willful, obstinate, stubborn unbelief. Because you don't want to yield to the reality that's in front of you, the facts that are in front of you. And when we consider this, this really makes a, a large difference. It makes a huge difference. And, and when we think about this, it should make a difference in your life as well. Matthew 12, 24 says this, and we look at this, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. See, they saw the facts when we see this, this incredible miracle where Jesus healed a demoniac that was both deaf and, 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 and couldn't hear, deaf and couldn't speak, rather. They understood what they saw, but they said, it can't be Christ because he's not the Christ I want. Can't be the Messiah because it's not the Messiah I want. Can't be from God because it's not the God I want. So it must be from Satan. They came up with that conclusion. That's what they came to. When they heard it, they said that. They, they believed that. So it's not just here, okay? It's not just here. We see this later on. This is even more stunning to me. We're going to get to this later, and I don't want to over, overdo this because there's a lot of good meat in this particular sermon down the road. But when Jesus healed or resurrected Lazarus, it's stunning for me to consider this. Maybe you too. This is kind of the end of the account. When, when those who saw it with their eyes, when they saw what Christ did, a man that was in the tomb for four days, and he, he resurrected this man, and he did it so easily with such authority, their reaction should have been awe and wonder and amazement. It should have been, and I'll, I'll just, I brought this up here on purpose, this it should have been what Dave gave us as his final quote today, which I just thought was so good. They, they didn't understand it, but if God be infinite in his glorious essence, learn to admire where you cannot fathom. That's what they should have done. I can't fathom this. That was Thomas Watson, by the way. Great quote that he left us with this morning. That should have been it, but that, that's not what they did. They reported back. Some of them probably were Pharisees, and they were plotting to kill him. Not just Jesus, but Lazarus too, so he wouldn't talk. Look at what the reason for this is. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. They saw the proof, okay? The evidence was there. And I want to understand this. Don't, just don't make this the Pharisees. You see, everybody around, there are some of you who still have not repented and believed on Jesus Christ. That's a possibility. Sitting here every week, that's a possibility. You've seen the facts. You understand the proof. You see it all, the Holy Spirit may be convicting you, and you're still obstinately, stubbornly unbelieving. But there are a lot of these people around us that are in your way on purpose, divinely appointed for you to encounter. They don't believe this. Notice, what are we to do? We see he's performing signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Take away my kingdom. 
This comes back to our generation. It comes back to how we are today. So central, centrally focused. So on our own life. And then if we skip down in this in, in, in John 11, verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Both he and, and Lazarus. Incredible. So as we continue on, we see this about them. They were divided. The Pharisees are divided about this. They're divided about this situation because they're struggling. Some of them, as we're going to see later, they saw the signs and they were getting worked on. They saw the signs and they understood the word of God from the Old Testament. They understood the prophets. They understood the symbolism. They understood Moses. And they were starting to put it together. But man, the fear was there. So there's division among them. There's division among them as to who Christ is. Why? Well, I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13 to give you some context as to why that is. And we have an application for ourselves to this as well that I'll bring out here after we read it. But Deuteronomy chapter 13, speaking of Moses and who they put up on a pedestal. And, and by the way, nothing wrong with that. God appointed Moses for a purpose. Moses, as Jesus will say here in just a moment when we get there, spoke of Christ. This isn't a bad thing to look to Moses and learn from Moses and to respect his writings. He was a man appointed by God, a great prophet. But look at this, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Here's what they knew in the back of their head. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, sure sounds like Jesus. He gave him a lot of signs and wonder. And the signs or wonders that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of the dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. That gives us context, doesn't it? Because we understand where these zealous Pharisees, these zealous Sadducees, in some cases, because the Sadducees would believe in this law of Moses as well. They wouldn't embrace the prophets, but they'd embrace this. You can see where their zeal came from. We don't think he's right. Now, they're wrong. <laughs> okay, just in case you're like, hey, wait a minute, they're onto something here. Maybe just, no, they're wrong. Because they weren't looking at the full context of Scripture, were they? They were isolating the things that they like. Now, this is where this comes back to you and me. We can do that too, can't we? We can do that. Modern-day Christians can do that. I've heard people preach on certain passages such as 2 Peter 3, 9, where, where Peter tells us that God has this heart, which we know is true, but boy, you can twist this, that God doesn't wish for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Rob Bell jumped on that one. And he came to the conclusion there's no eternal hell. Dangerous, isn't it? It's true in God's word, but when we don't look at the full complexion, we don't full, look at the full authority of Scripture, you can come to a bad conclusion. That's not a good thing to do. How about this one? I've heard this. Actually, I've had a student tell me this because a pastor told them this. I had just taught the students about homosexuality and transgender and these sorts of issues that come up and what God's word says about that. And the conclusion that a pastor had given them when they struggled with this, and their struggle, by the way, was conviction from the Holy Spirit because the Word of God is true. 
They quoted to me 1 John 4, 18, which says, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with judgment. You're trying to judge me. Totally misunderstanding that. Totally taking it out of context. We know as believers, I pray that you know, that the reason why we fear the Lord is because he saved us. We fear him because we know who he is. We understand his authority, what place he sits on, and that he is high and lifted up, and by his grace he saved us. So the fear of his judgment is taken away from the believer. It doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want and no one's going to judge us. But you can take a verse and make it what you want it to be. So you understand. I understand where they get some of this idea, but they missed it. And Christ educates us about this. Look at this. Christ points to Scripture, and he always will. John 1, 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We know who he is, and he's spoken of himself. This is who Moses is speaking of. The same Moses that says, look out for false teachers, says, look at the complexity of Scripture. Look at the full balance of Scripture. Look at all of it. This is the guy. This is the one. This goes back to Deuteronomy 18, where there is a a, a prophet that's going to arise amongst the people. Much like Moses, but greater than Moses. Jesus says this in John chapter 5. We see this. You sh- he says this to, to this point. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You're right. They're good. The eternal life is found in my word. But you're missing what they're talking about. It's about me. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you. It's Moses on whom you've set your hope. So they've missed the full idea of it. Now as we go forward, we know Jesus' last words to his apostles. And this connects to what I talked to you about at the very beginning. You may say, I understand this. I know who Christ is. I believe this fulfillment. And we got to be careful about arrogance. Look at what it says. He said to them, these are his words to his apostles. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Look at verse 45. Look at it carefully. I should have made that bold. I missed it. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Doesn't that sound a little bit like um, what we talked about at the beginning? The, The fear that we should have to approach the Word of God with arrogance, with pride, that I've come to this conclusion, he opened them up. Now, what does Christ do? He uses the Old Testament to prove who he is. He uses, it's apologetics 101. Defend the faith with what the the proof of Scripture has played out in the life of Christ. But he opened up their mind. If you know this, if you understand this, it's because it came from above. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is part of this great commission that we also see in Matthew 28. But this comes from above. And this, this comes from the only one who could reveal it to you. We've... This whole idea, the overriding theme of this miracle is that he's given you sight, right? Let's go back to what Jeffrey reminded us of in in this meeting. The first miracle is that they got to see this, and Jesus made them see it. And that continues on in their life, by the way. This continued all, Luke 24 is much later, and he's still teaching them. And and after he, he leaves and the Holy Spirit's with them, he's still teaching them. And they're still learning, and that's true of you too. Progressive sanctification continues until you take your last breath. This is a reality for all of us. In this particular 
uh, account in Luke 24 know the context. Earlier, the, the two disciples, rather, on the road to Emmaus had the same experience. He used the Old Testament to show them, and he opened up their mind to see this. It's pretty amazing stuff when we see this. So we understand why there's division. we got guys getting worked on. we got guys that are seeing the Scriptures. They can see the truth, and they all see the evidence. But there's a division because of how they approach the Word of God. Are they approaching it? In a humble way, broken way, to see what God is teaching them? Or are they taking their own ideas and putting into Scripture? Very dangerous thing. Then we get to this question. Well, what do you say about him? Back to John 9. John 9, 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? What do you say about him? And boy, I'll tell you right, right now, and I even put this right in my note to tell you this, I was so tempted to jump the gun here. And, and really tell you and challenge you, and I'm going to next week, so don't, don't misunderstand me. It's still there, but I had to take out about 10 slides here because I really wanted to come to you, and I'm just going to warm you up. Well, what do you say about him? Okay, but we'll get to that next week. Okay? We'll get to that next week. I'm, I still want to do it, but I'm not going to. Okay? 9-17, that's next week. You come back. Okay? So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, and he said, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. No doubt about it. Now, we've seen this before, too, by the way, a few times. Pastor hit us in John 4, and he said, for you have five with a woman at the, at the well, the Samaritan woman. You have five husbands, and the one now have, you have is not your husband. What have you said? What, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She knew he was special. She knew he was special. We've seen this word and this association before as well in John 6. Okay, so when we think about this, this idea of him being the prophet, this was one I preached on, which is the feeding of the 5,000. When he did this, this amazed them. And we'll pick it up at the end here. When the people, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, that's a slightly different version of what she said in, in John 4 going back. A prophet, they said he's the prophet. He's the prophet. Now, once again, they still had a bad notion because they wanted to make him king right now. So they skipped right over Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, the suffering servant, the fact that they needed to have forgiveness of their sins, that their bigger problem wasn't that the Romans were in charge. Their bigger problem was their sin nature. Their bigger problem was the fact that they were depraved sinners like the rest of us. And they wanted to make him king right away. So there's two different things to look at here, two different ideas. Where does this come from? Well, we know the prophet is what I alluded to earlier. won't spend any time on it because I've covered it before. But Deuteronomy chapter 18, God predicted that this would come, that there would be a prophet who would arise, as I mentioned earlier today, from amongst your brothers, from amongst the Israelite, and you shall listen to him. So there are some who are believing he is this prophet. And he's going to raise this prophet up. And what he says, you listen to, and I, I want you to follow him. Whoever will not listen to my words sh- that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. We get an idea from Acts 3. We won't go there. But what Peter says, what is he going to require of them? He's going to destroy them. It's judgment if you don't listen to him. So they understand these people in, in uh, John chapter 6. But I kind of want to hyper-focus on the John 4, John 9 comparison. Just hang in there with me. I think it's kind of interesting. And there's, there's something to be taken from this for you and for me today. Just look at this slide I've created here. 
I just want to kind of give you a review. I know I did it out of order because we're dealing with John 9 today, but I want you to look at the comparison, like the progression that we see. If we look at the beginning of this account and we're trying to think about, well, what does this guy think about Jesus? Here's the first thing we say. He's a man called Jesus. That's what he says. That's all he knows about him. He's a man called Jesus. Now, maybe he's heard other things. I don't know. But he's a man called Jesus. When the woman at the well encounters him, all she knows about he's a Jew. He's a Jewish guy. She was a Samaritan. So when she said that, she was thinking that. She probably wasn't thinking highly of Jesus yet. He was just a Jew. Okay. Then as we see a continuation, what did we just see? Well, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. He's special. I know he's special because he did things that are special, that are supernatural. And then we see a progression here. She says, sir, but she gets to prophet. So she gives him some respect in verse 11 of John 4, but then she comes to that same conclusion. Same word, by the way. He's special. He knows something. He knows something that is different than what other people know. And then we see his more of a progression, a man coming from God. Now he knows, okay, he's a prophet, but he's divinely appointed. He's special. And both of them came to the right conclusion eventually. And we'll see this out of our, our man next week. He says this, Lord, I believe and, I worship, and he worshiped him. He, he came to this conclusion. He, he realized this. He didn't start there. Okay? That's it, not how he began. He just is a man named Jesus. That's all he was. He's, he's starting to progress. And she and the others there, he's the savior of the world. They came to the same conclusion. Why do I say all of that? Well, because the people that you have around you, they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the truth. But you're not the only person in this game. Okay, And, and you think, well, yeah, but if I tell them and they don't believe, I must have screwed that up. Well, you might have. I, I don't know. I, I haven't been there. Maybe you did. You know your word better. Okay? But if you're faithfully delivering the word of God, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. You faithfully deliver the word of God. You may be planting a seed. You may be stoking the fire. But God is in control of this, and in his, he directs the steps of man. And there may be somebody who comes along a little later that will get to close the deal. And Jesus is the one closing the deal. But they may get to, to watch it. You may not. You may not. And you say, well, there's no precedent for that in the Scriptures. You're wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul even says this. What does he say? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We all are part of this. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. There's going to be faithful servants along the way that are doing their job in these divine appointments, and they are proclaiming the word of God. Sometimes you mess that up. Then God gets somebody else in there. He doesn't lose a single one of his sheep. It's not on you. And when you put that burden on you, it's sinful. It's, not, it's, it's bad for you, but it's also sinful. It's God who gives growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each one will receive his wages according to his labor. But we're nothing. It's he who makes the growth. It's he who saves so when I look at this, and I, I think of this account, and we see this, this is kind of how people are today. I, I wish that every single time I preached the gospel to somebody, instantly they believed right then on the spot. How awesome would that be? My job would be extremely fulfilling every day, because I deliver the gospel every day. But that's not the case, and you know it, and it's not the case for you either. But you faithfully continue to do your bit. You do what God has put in front of you, and talk to the people who are in front of you. God's put people on a journey. He put you on a journey. I think of your testimonies out here. I've heard many of them. Incredible how God saved you, how he did that. And he used his servants along the way. And you're in that same situation now if you're in Christ. You've been given this opportunity. 
continue to do that. And that's what we see here. Of course, this is Christ who's doing it. You'd think that if, if Christ were speaking the gospel to somebody, they'd, they'd believe immediately. But that's not the case either. That's not the case either. So I wouldn't expect it for yourself. Anyway, just an interesting side note to this particular message. Stay faithful in the work that you do. Stay faithful. All right, let's get to this next section here. He uses these servants, but let's now ask the parents. Let's meet the parents, and let's see what they have to say about this. So back to the text, John 9, 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And he asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents answered, we don't know. That this is, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how now he sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. Okay, so that's what we see here. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Real quick, don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Many people debate about what this means, that he is of age. It certainly means he's at least 13 years old. I would guess he's older than that, especially the way in which he speaks back to the Pharisees. On the other hand, if you've ever been around a teenager... It's a possibility that (laughs) he's a teenager because of the way he's speaking back to the Pharisees. However, in that culture, I think it was a little bit uh, more reverence for the authorities in front of you. However, we just know he was old enough to consider, and I think that because of the amazement of this, I'm guessing he's in his 20s. That's a total guess, but he's of age. He's at least 13. I want you to notice this about these parents, the investigation that these parents are not willing to go all the way. They're not willing to, to take that final step. And why? Well, we know why. The text tells us why, and we've cut, covered it already as to why. But I, I want you to understand this, and this is going to get real personal. If you're in Christ, you're called to do something. If you're in Christ, you're called to be something. If you're in Christ, you're called to be courageous. And if you're in Christ, you're called to boldly speak the truth. And here's what we know from, of course, Romans 10, famously. But what, do we, what does it say? The word is near, near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Notice proclaiming it in your mouth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By the way, this isn't a formula. There are people who cannot speak, who can put their faith in Christ. What does this mean? It means that you're willing to proclaim the name of Jesus if you're in Christ. Why? Because he's your life. Why? Because everlasting life has been given to you when you didn't deserve it. Why? Because you've been saved from your sins, because he's changed you, because you're a new creation. You're a whole new creature. Because he's given you the words to say, because his word commands it, because you love him, because you know it's your commission. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. If you're in Christ, you're going to get through the fear and you're going to do what you're called to do. It is not easy, and I'm not going to tell you from this pulpit that it's easy to proclaim the name of Jesus. Sometimes it's hard. Ask any of the apostles if you can, and you can't, but someday you will. It was hard. Every step of the way it was hard. Many of them died for this name, and they knew that it was coming because Jesus warned them of it. So when I warn you of it, it's coming from Christ. Confess the name of Christ. But why didn't they? Well, we know. The text says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. And John gives us the insight that here's what was on the line. They would be thrown out of the synagogue if they confessed the name of Christ. Well, what are the ramifications of that? Well, they're social. They're emotional. They're economic. They're familiar. There's family that won't have anything to do with you anymore. 
There are, there are people who won't do business with you anymore. And of course, they had viewed wrongly, but they had viewed that everything has to go through the synagogue, everything has to go through the Pharisees, everything has to go through the Sanhedrin. This is the authority, and if I don't have that, I don't have God. That's the way they thought of it. And this was a tough thing. This was a difficult thing. But it was the fear of them that were around them, this fear of the Jews. And they said this, and they're not the only ones that say this. Okay, let's look at some of these things that we see. Earlier in John, Nicodemus was a Pharisee who was afraid of Pharisees. Think about it. He was amongst them and, and respected by them, but he's afraid of them. How do you know he was afraid? Well, he came at night. He came at night. I, I don't know that this is a definitive. He isn't, but I, I think it is. I think John puts this in here on purpose because if he was obviously and open with it, John would have written all about that. How cool would that be, right? That Nicodemus, the great Nicodemus, proclaimed the name of Christ publicly while he was... We don't see that. He was believing, but it was, it was just investigative belief at this point. We see this again in, in, as we go forward in John chapter 12. It says this very specifically, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities, the same Jewish authorities we've been talking about, so these could be Pharisees, we don't know of any Sadducees, but of the priestly line, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they didn't confess it. Pharisees being afraid of Pharisees. They wouldn't put out, so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. Same, same thing, okay? And Jesus addresses this with them in John 5. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek glory that comes from the only God? They were looking for glory of men, affirmation from men. And again, I just got to bring this to us, right? I got to bring this to us. What drives you? Is it, the, is it the, the appreciation you get from the human beings around you? Is it the pats on the back you get from them? Is it the glory they give you? Or is it the glory from the Almighty? And I'm going to tell you something. If you seek for the glory from the Almighty, you may be all alone when you do that. I, I would say oftentimes, and it will get increasingly so in our culture, you will be ostracized for it. You will be called hateful for it. You will be isolated. You will be canceled. Uh, we went through that series in Sunday school for 13 weeks. Uh, Lutzer's book about this very thing. that we, We've got to stand strong on this, but no, there's ramifications for that. And then finally, we see an example, even after this is all kind of said and done and Christ's burial, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. A disciple of Jesus. We know that this man was part of the Sanhedrin, according to Mark 15. Matthew 27, he was wealthy. We know that. Luke 23, he was looking for the kingdom. He just was afraid of men. He was afraid of men. So I want you to notice what Alistair says about this as we close this and kind of bring this around. The reason the parents said this was because they were afraid of the Jews. The Jews had decided that anyone acknowledging Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. We shouldn't make... We shouldn't make little of that. There's some significance in it, isn't there? The, the embarrassment that would be attached to that kind of removal was substantial. But if they had truly understood what had happened, just resonate with this, if they had truly come to understand who this Jesus was, when they would have, then they would have taken their stand with their boy. As it was, they didn't take their stand with their boy because they couldn't. They couldn't. Why couldn't they? They couldn't because they had not come to trust in Jesus as Savior themselves couldn't do it. 
The overwhelming fear of man, the overwhelming draw to the culture to fit in, to be amongst the world, it is what we are until Christ saves us. That is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It is every single one of us until grace is bestowed, until Christ saves you. They couldn't do it. So the Pharisees are distanced from this great good news by their formalism and self-righteousness, as we've discussed today. And the parents are distanced from their, this great good news by their fear. By their fear. Turn to Matthew chapter 10 as we close. Matthew chapter 10. And I'm going to close with this. You know, I know what's in Matthew 10. This is not a really happy passage. I'm going to actually close with 2 Timothy 1. But we're closing here. We're closing we go to Matthew chapter 10. It's a tough passage. I know it is. It's a tough passage. I'll bring it up on the screen so you can see the verses. Matthew 10, 27 through 39. But it's sobering and it's necessary because Christ tells us the cost of discipleship. Now, do not misinterpret this passage and say, this is how you earn salvation. That is impossible. We are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone in Christ alone. That is the way it works. However, if that is true of you, this is what it will practically look like in the face of fear and difficulty. Verse 26, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. I'm going to pause. This is very much like what we heard in Romans earlier in Romans 10. We confess this. This is what Christians do. When we don't, it's cowardice. I'm going to call you out, right? And I'm going to call me out because I've done it. I shared with the, uh, I shared with the, um, the de- elders, I think, the, and the deacons weren't there, but the elders, that I've failed at this even recently for things even less than cowardice, just laziness, where I've had things teed up for me to proclaim the gospel after leaving this pulpit and telling you to do it and failing to do that because of a lot of different reasons that come up in our minds. So I'm preaching to us, but God's calling us to proclaim his name, back to the text, from the housetops, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. People don't like to talk about that part of Jesus, but that's who he is. He is judge as well and executioner. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are, are, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. This is not earning it. This is what will a true believer will do. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Heavy stuff from Christ. This is the standard, though. This is what the Holy Spirit will empower you to do. If you're thinking, I, I don't know if I can do this. Well, you can't. But if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit's going to help you. He's going to be right there with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't lose one of you, and he's going to help you. The paraclete is there for this reason. I know it seems amazing what some of the incredible examples that we've seen throughout Christian history, what they have done for the name of Christ. These people who have given it all, families, wealth, position, lives, pain they've gone through. But God can equip you. He's done that through them. He'll do that through you. Think of Stephen and beyond. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father. Hmm, interesting, right? And a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against their mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. His folks weren't helping him in this moment. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this is really what the heart of the matter is. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Hmm. Heavy stuff. But here's what Jesus says to us through, through Paul in his last letter to Timothy. And this I truly am ending on. This is important. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy's going through some stuff here. Timothy's going through some issues. What? Well, persecution's on the rise. Nero is getting worse. That's for sure happening. The Jews haven't let off yet either. You got false teachers in and around Ephesus. And on top of all of that, the young Timothy is facing people within his own own church who are challenging his authority. And he's really going through the gamut. And, And he's wavering. And in the midst of, by the way, Paul, in near death, he is on the brink of being killed for the gospel himself, has concern for this young Timothy, and he's encouraging him. And he does the same for you. I don't know what you're going through, but you're going through stuff. And you're going through difficulties and persecution is coming your way. With that context, let's end with this. This, for this very reason, I remind you, something you already know, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of many hands. His specific calling, his specific role, but God's also gifted you as a believer to do his work in this time and in this place, whatever that is. For God gave us a spirit not of fear. This word here is delia in Greek, and it's not a nice one. It's a cowardly, shameful, self-seeking, self-centered view of life. It's cowardly. That's not what we're about, Christian. That's not the spirit God gave us. Notice, I know you and I are like that by nature, but the Holy Spirit in you is not. He's not like that. He is bold like a lion. He is the lion of Judah. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's with you but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel. Be ostracized, be cast out. Go through the difficulty, go through the suffering if that's what you're called to do. The Lord's with you. He's gonna power you to do this. Suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Once again, this is not in you, I know. It's in the Holy Spirit in you who saves us and calls us to a holy calling, not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is plan A. It always has been. He's not surprised with what you're going through. He's not surprised with the the thing that he's put in front of you, the challenge, the difficulty, the opportunities. He made them. He created them for you to walk in them. Amazing. As we consider our one and we consider this, Know your God and his power and who he is and that he put you here for a reason for this day, for this hour, for this moment, for his glory. So of course he's going to help you do that. Of course he's going to powerfully enhance what you're doing, what he's given you, and his word, he's going to use it to change lives and to save sinners. Blessed be the Lord our God who does that through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. What an incredible example we see from your son, and the apostles that followed him, I pray that we not fall into these same traps. We can easily do that. The fear of man is powerful. Fear of culture is powerful. The fear of our own ego is powerful. But we know your Holy Spirit can drive right through that. The the word of God, your word, is so powerful, it changes us. I pray that that happens today. For those in here who, who do not yet know your son, I pray that they consider who he is. I pray that they yield, that they repent, that they believe because of his finished work on the cross and his victory over death. And for those of us who do, that we remember that and remember what we are 
are, are, are doing here, what you've put us here for, and, and what glory is deserving of you, and how you're glorified in your name being proclaimed and your gospel being sp- presented to this lost world. I pray that we do that with all authority that you give us, but with all honor and dignity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.